this week was actually a, 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 a contrasting week for me. It was, it was very interesting where I had the chance to, to do VBS, and, and it was so great to be able to hang out with those kids, uh, tell Bible stories. And, uh, you know, I, I, it was funny as I was teaching those kids, uh, you know, they, they laughed at every one of my jokes. Uh, none of those kids fell asleep when I was teaching them. Uh, they, they, uh, they, they, they said amen, and they interacted as I was teaching, and I was like, man, that was great to, to be able to teach to, you know? It was, uh, it was super fun. Uh, the kids, they learned this uh, lesson this week about shining Jesus' light uh, with the idea that when people are sad, we should shine Jesus' light. Uh, when things are good, when good things happen, we should shine Jesus' light. When there's conflict with people, we should shine Jesus' light. And as I'm teaching this to these kids, I'm kind of like, Man, how many of us adults need to be reminded of that same thing? Like when things are bad, when there's conflict, uh, or when things are good, we should shine Jesus' light. Like that would be good for us adults to be reminded of. But one of the things I love working with kids is they're so honest with their conversations. Like you can ask them a question and it, it, there's no filter. Like, kids just come up with the most random things. And so we were talking on the day, we were talking about uh, uh, when, when, when we're sad, we're supposed to shine Jesus' light. So I asked the kids, I'm like, hey, tell me a time when you were sad. And one little boy puts his hand up, and, and I'm like, oh, I'm ready for this. And he goes, well, um, you know, one time um, I thought I was going to fart, and it was wet. And that made me sad. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, dude, like, where'd that come from? Like, who knows what comes out of a kid's mind? Like, wow. But then there was this other little kid, a uh, little girl, and, and it just it broke my heart because the question was, again, tell me about a time that you were sad. And she said, well, uh, you know, I had this teacher last year, and I don't think my teacher liked me. She said, my teacher yelled at me and said I wasn't smart and I never was going to be good at math. Now, Again, this is through, you know, uh, I don't know how much truth was in that. But if there was any hint of truth, I think how devastating for that little girl to have this authority figure say, you're dumb. You're not going to be smart at math. How hard for that little girl. Isn't that kind of the way life works? It happens all the time where we are mistreated. Somebody gives harsh words towards us. Somebody does something that, that wounds us in our hearts. And then what do we do with those wounds? What do we do? And again, the world has all sorts of answers. Uh, the world would say to this little girl, hey, that teacher said you're not going to be smart. You go prove that teacher wrong. You go and achieve. You go be really good and, and say, look, teacher, look how great I became. Look all that I overcame on my own strength. Go prove yourself. Go achieve. Sometimes when we're not able to do that, we're not able to achieve, we're not able to make ourselves smarter or whatever it happens to be, the next thing is we begin to find comfort in the wrong places. We got that pain inside of us, and so we think, what can I do to numb that pain? And so we numb our pain with all sorts of things, food, or drugs, or alcohol, or pornography, or shopping, or social media. And we go to these things because they're like a way for us to, to numb the pain and forget about the pain and have a little bit of dopamine that comes in that makes us feel good in the moment that leaves that wound still there festering and growing within us. So that was VBS. Thursday afternoon, 
uh, we had the chance to, to, to have a memorial service for Denise Myers. And uh, those of you that were there this week, thank you for being a part of that. Uh, there is something uh, in the grieving process, there's something beautiful about coming together, grieving together, crying together, laughing together, telling stories together. Uh, there's something beautiful that God does, and we're able to grieve together. And so those of you that made it on Thursday, thank you for being a part of that. That was such a beautiful time. Uh, just to remember Denise. Uh, but one of the ladies I was at the funeral, having a conversation, and uh, she said, you don't need to be sad. She said, because we'll see and we'll hear Denise again, not in heaven, not with Jesus, but we'll see and hear her in the mountains, in the birds, and in nature. And I had this thought listening to her. I'm like, she believes in this idea because it's going to give her some sort of comfort. And honestly, maybe it sounds spiritual, but it's not biblical. It's not from the Lord. And I had this interesting week, and I'm looking at these two experiences. I'm looking at this VBS and this little kid and this little sad girl and a sad story, and I'm looking at this lady who's trying to take comfort in some weird things. And I thought, isn't this the way our world is? When we're grieving, when we're hurting, when we're dealing with wounds and we have problems to face, there are lots of counterfeits. Lots of counterfeits that would say, if you do this, you'll have peace. If you do this, you'll have joy and acceptance. A lot of counterfeits that promise what we long for but can never actually give what we need. Being strong, achieving, numbing our pain, spiritual thoughts that itch our ear and make us feel a little bit better, but lack truth, those things are all counterfeits. Because that healing that we long for the soul within us that longs for peace and joy and 100% acceptance as we are, it doesn't come from performance. It doesn't come from us achieving and being good enough. It doesn't come from us learning how to, to numb our pain. It doesn't come from empty spiritual, spiritual jargon. It comes from a relationship with Jesus. We've been studying the book of Acts for the majority of this year, trying to say as a church, how do we not just become an institution? We all can picture churches at institutions where places where you come for religious services, uh, you, 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 you put your tithe in, and then you go home, and you feel really good about yourself. We don't want to be an institution. We are trying to say, how does a church become a movement? And the book of Acts, the church was a movement that changed and impacted everything around it. And that's our desire here at Restoration Churches. How do we become a movement that impacts people and places around us? Today, Jake read for us out of Acts chapter 13. And Acts chapter 13 is, is really a major transition in the book of Acts. Because if you, if you remember, uh, the very beginning of the book of Acts, our very first week, we read Acts 1.8, where Jesus told the disciples, he told the church, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so far, Acts 1 through 12, this is about 10 years, the church has been centered in Jerusalem. It's been centered in trying to reach uh, fellow Jews. The church, the, the, the main leader of the church has been the apostle Peter. He's kind of been the one who, who is the prominent leader. And Acts chapter 13 brings this transition. We're no longer, is the center of Christianity going to be in Jerusalem? But now it's going to be into the church of Antioch. And now the focus is going to be less on reaching the Jewish people and now reaching the Gentiles. This is where the church goes from reaching 
uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, this is a transition where the church says, no, we're gonna go to the ends of the earth and take the gospel so that people could have a life-changing relationship with him. Acts chapter 13 also is that transition where you're gonna see Peter kind of fade into the background and you're gonna, we're gonna see the apostle Paul step in and to become the prominent leader in the church throughout much of the rest of the book of Acts. And today, we get to see how the church at Antioch, we get to see how Paul are stepping in to their calling, not just to be a Christian, but they're stepping into that calling to be witnesses of Jesus, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as witnesses, they're going to address the crooked paths, and I'll call these crooked paths of the world, things that Satan does that are counterfeits, that say, if you just do this, you'll have what you long for, but they're counterfeits. They can never give us a real thing. And we're gonna see how the church and how Paul, how they address those crooked paths and show us that it is the gospel, it is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross that makes straight the paths to God and for the peace and the joy and the acceptance and the healing in our hearts that we long for. So our text today starts out in verse one. And it says, there were in the church of Antioch prophets and leaders and teachers. Barnabas was one. Simon, who's called Niger, was the second. Lucius of Cyrene. Manian, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And Saul. Here you've got the leaders at the church of Antioch. And this is a diverse group of people from different backgrounds, which is a healthy thing. That's a healthy church when there's a diversity. They're all not the same type of person. There's a diversity in their leadership. In verse two, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. We see this word fasting, and that's not something we talk about very often. Fasting is a, a spiritual discipline. And what it is, it's where we, we set aside uh, normal demands uh, of life for a certain time so we can concentrate on what God wants. Fasting is us saying, I need to remove some things in my life in order to receive from God fully. And here are the leaders of the church. They've got the church saying, hey, we want to receive from God. We want to know what God has for us. And so they are worshiping and they're fasting. And while they're doing that, verse two, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them to. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and they sent them off. See, this is something I love about this church in Antioch. The church at Antioch, they're not settling on just getting into maintenance mode. I mean, sometimes churches get in the season where it's kind of like, hey, we're just gonna maintain what we've got going on and we'll just kind of go through the religious motions and we'll show up on Sunday and do our thing and, and that's kind of good enough. The church at Antioch says, no, we're not gonna settle for just going through the religious motions. We're not gonna settle on being an, an institution. No, they're like, no, God's given us a mission. He's given us a purpose. He said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. He said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. Your mission is to know Christ and make Christ known. And the church of Antioch is saying, darn it, we're gonna be intentional about pursuing what God has asked us to do, to be his witnesses. And they're praying and fasting, saying, God, how do we do this? What would you have us to do? And the Holy Spirit comes and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to set apart Barnabas and Saul because I've all called them to go. And the church gathers around them, lays hands on them, prays for them, and commissions them and sends them off. What this means is the church came together and said, yeah, God placed this calling on Barnabas and Saul. And they're like, we see it. 
We see God's hand in their life. We see how God has been preparing Barnabas and Saul. We see their testimony. We see the calling in their life. And so by the church coming together to lay hands on them, the church is saying, we agree with what God has called you to do. We see it in your life. In fact, not only do we see it, but we're going to lay hands on you because we want to be a part of what God is doing in you. We are with you. God's going to take you across the world as a missionary. And guess what? We're partners in ministry with you praying for you, supporting you financially, with you physically as much as we can. And that's the church coming together to say, man, God has a mission, God has a purpose, and we're all in it together. Reminds me of, of 10 and a half years ago. Uh, there was 50 of us from Restoration Church that were gathered together in the auditorium at Westside Church. And Westside Church uh, gathered around the 50 of us in the middle of this room. They laid hands on us. And they prayed for Restoration Church before we actually ever planted. And that was Westside Church saying, hey, as you guys go to plant this church, we're with you. We're with you. Physically, prayerfully, financially, we are partners in ministry together. And I'll tell you what, it's a beautiful thing when a church understands its purpose. It's a beautiful thing when the church understands we're not just committed to be an institution to going through the religious motions, to just maintain some sort of thing. No, it's a great thing when the church is committed to fulfill their mission to be witnesses in their own city and across the world. And this is where I would say one of the things I love about Restoration Church. I think we're a church that is committed to that mission. Now, I'll say, we've talked about this as elders, like we'd love to see us grow in our foreign missions and be able to do more of that. But one of the things I love on our, on our leadership team is we gather together on a regular basis and we pray and say, God, what would you have us to do? How can we reach people in your name? So we start thinking about what the Lord has, has led to us. We've done uh, VBS. You know why we do VBS? Not just to entertain kids. We do VBS so we can tell kids about Jesus and a life-changing relationship with him. We do things like Sunday of service so we can learn what it looks like for us to go out and serve and give ourselves away. We do things like Roosevelt Elementary. There's uh, School years is not far from starting, and there's already some conversations on, hey, what is it going to look like for us to partner at Roosevelt Elementary? What kind of ministry could we do there so we could, again, point people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus? Man, I love that the church is saying we're intentional about this. We're not just gonna go through the religious motions and do church normal every week. We're gonna be intentional on how can we take the gospel and reach people with the truth about Jesus Christ. So verse four, it says, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, Cyprus, it would have been a natural thing for Barnabas and Saul to go to because Barnabas was actually from Cyprus. That's where he was raised, and so they're like, where do we go? God's calling us. And they're like, Cyprus is a natural spot. Barnabas is kind of like, hey, I've got some old relationships. I've got some connections. Like I can call some people and say, hey, meet us at the synagogue. You know, and, and when Barnabas, uh, way back then when he was raised, they, he was known as Barney. That was, actually, that's not true. I just made that up. I've been waiting to say that joke for weeks since we started talking about Barnabas. He wasn't really known. I don't know if he was known as Barnabas, Barney. Maybe he was, but I just think that's really funny. Um, so uh, back, back at verse five, <laughs> verse five. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had with them John to assist them. This John is, is, is also named, uh, uh, called John Mark. He's the guy who wrote the gospel of Mark that we have in our Bibles today. 
Verse 6, it says, When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet by the name of Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus, a false prophet. See, one of the things about God is, is God is a creator. God creates. God is a creator, and Satan is an imitator. I mean, can you picture Satan right now? He's like, hey, wait a second, wait a second. They've got Jesus. Hey, guys, I got a really good idea. I got a really good idea. They've got Jesus. My idea, let's call him Bar-Jesus. Let's call him Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus simply means son of Jesus, and it's really not all that creative, right? It's just confusing. And that's what Satan does. Satan just wants it to be confusing. That's his, his, if I can confuse the people away from the truth, man, Satan begins to win. Satan is into counterfeiting. He wants something that looks good, something that sounds spiritual, something that makes sense to our worldly minds. He wants something that is easy. And let's be honest, how many counterfeits Satan has in the world that we look at without much investigation? We're like, I'm sold. I'm in for it. We're fooled by his counterfeits. Because Satan knows how to itch our sinful ears to make something sound, man, that's easier to believe rather than surrendering to Jesus. And so what do many of us do? What have many of us done in our life? We take the counterfeit. And this is this false prophet saying, hey, follow me. I'm bar Jesus. Follow me. It's easy to follow me. Don't follow the way, the truth, and life. Follow me. I'm, I'm bar Jesus. Verse 7, it says, the false prophet was with the proconsul, Sergius Pulis, a man who, an intelligent man, who summoned Barnabas and Saul because he sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the magician, that's the meaning of his name, he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Proconsul is simply a governor. It's a governor of the region. This magician, this, this false prophet, he had a plan. His plan lined up with Satan's plan. Satan's plan is to steal, kill, and destroy. And this magician, he's a, a worker of sin. He's an opposer of God. He's an imposter of the truth. He's a counterfeit. And his plan Hey, I need to take the governor's attention away from Jesus and put it onto me. I don't want him looking at, at Barnabas and Saul because they're going to talk about the word of God and they're going to talk about truth. No, I need your attention on me. Let's take your eyes off of the truth and get it onto me. One of the things we need to understand is the gospel will always have opposition. The truth of the gospel will always have opposition. Satan will do everything in his power turn people away from the truth. And you might wonder, why, why do I have opposition in my life? Why do I have these difficulty? Because suffering is a reality for those of us who follow Jesus. That's why 11 out of 12 of Jesus' disciples were martyred for their faith because they believed. So verse 9, it says, Saul, who was also called Paul, and I just want to pause there for a second. Like, I don't know how many of you, like, uh, I thought for years that, like, like Saul, that was who he was, and he was a murderer of Christians. And then he becomes a Christian. It becomes one of the Christians. It becomes, and so they changed his name to Paul because he, you know, he became a different person. God changed him. 
Kind of like, kind of like in the NBA, there was a player by the name of Ron Artest who got in this big melee, big old brawl uh, at a basketball game. And after the game, he's like, hey, I'm, cha- I'm, cha- I'm a new person. I changed my name to Meta World Peace. Like, is that what happened with Paul? He was, he was Saul, and now he's Paul. But actually, that's not the case. Because uh, in the Bible days, oftentimes you had, a, you had two names. You had a Jewish name and a Roman or a Gentile name. And so Saul, when he was with Jews, his name was Saul. And when he was with the Romans or with Gentiles, his name was Paul. So his name, he always had these two different names. Now that we're going to see him uh, be a missionary to the Gentiles, to, to the ends of the earth, he's going to go for most of the time by the name of, of Paul. So it says, Paul, verse 9, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked intently at the magician, and he said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you are full of all deceit and all villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Satan and this false prophet are here, and they are laying a crooked path, a crooked path away from God, away from God so the glory comes to themselves, so that they become the center of attention. The attention is on them. And again, this is what Satan wants to do. Satan wants it to be confusing. He wants it to be confusing. He wants things to sound religious. He wants things to sound spiritual. So the glory gets off of God, off of Jesus, and onto man. Isn't this what our cults have done? Isn't this what Joseph Smith did with Mormonism? I want to make it sound spiritual, But really, it's a crooked path that takes you away from the truth. I mean, you can look at Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and Christian scientists. There's all these these cults that have done this same thing. Satan comes in, I'm going to draw a crooked path and draw people away from the truth and confuse them. And I'll give them some religious cliches so it sounds good. They're simply a counterfeit. That's what they are. They're a counterfeit. The question then becomes, if, if the magician is there and he's, he's trying to make these crooked paths, what are the crooked paths? Well, the answer is verse 8. Verse 8, it said that he was trying to turn the governor away from faith. To make crooked paths is to turn people away from faith in Jesus. Turn people away from faith in the gospel of what Jesus has done. So if that is the crooked path, then we would say that the straight path to the Lord, is this not talking about the gospel? What Jesus has done for us? You might write in your Bible next to to verse 10, you might write in Isaiah chapter 40, because that's where this term, the straight path of the Lord, comes from. And Isaiah chapter 40, excuse me, not 10, Isaiah chapter 40, there's a prophecy about John the Baptist, how John the Baptist will be the one crying out in the wilderness Make way the, the straight path of the Lord, pointing to Jesus. That Jesus is the one who's going to make that straight path where you can have a relationship with God because of what Jesus has done on the cross by paying the, 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 the debt for our sin. Paul comes in. He sees this magician laying these crooked paths. And notice he calls him, again, His name is Bar-Jesus. I'm the son of Jesus. And what does Paul call him? No, you're a son of the devil. You're leading people away from the truth, from the life, from Jesus. Verse 11, Paul says, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, 
and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately the mist and darkness fell on him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then, verse 12, the proconsul, the governor, he believed when he saw what he had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You hear that? Satan tried to make crooked the paths to the Lord. He tried to lead people away from the truth. But Paul shows up, and Paul knows, man, my life is built on the straight path to the Lord. My, my life is built on the gospel. And he, he, he pushes all back on the magician. He continues to preach the word of God to the governor. The governor places his faith in Jesus. Because you know what? No matter how hard Satan fights against us, when we stand firm on the truth, God continues to do his work of saving people. And history shows, history shows that this governor, his family, became Christians, and they became well-known and invaluable in the Christian community. Why? Because when the false prophet was there to try and lead them away from the truth, Paul showed up and said, no, let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me tell you where peace and freedom and healing are truly found. Let me tell you about the straight paths of the Lord. And we'll close with verse 13. It says, Paul and his companions, they set sail from Paphos and came to uh, Perga and to Pham. Pamphyl, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. I wanted you to take note of that last line, that Paul left them and returned to Jerusalem. We aren't given the reason why John left, but we're gonna find in the next couple of weeks that for Paul, this was a big issue. For Paul, John leaving them was a desertion. It was him leaving his, his post. It was, it was a desertion. It was, it was a major problem. It was a point of contention that's going to lead to Paul and Barnabas no longer being able to go forward in ministry together. And it makes me think of this quote. It makes me think of this quote. Martin Luther said, God writes straight lines with crooked sticks. Because, you know, we look at the, when we look at the leaders of the church, we look at the leaders in the Bible, and we're like, those guys are perfect. They have it all figured out. Now, actually, you see the leaders in this church, there's still conflict. There's still issues they gotta work through. There's grace I gotta give one another. There's forgiveness that has to be given to one another in order for the church to move forward. And so as they're committed to these straight paths of the Lord, they're committed to the gospel. Man, remember we talk about this idea here at the church? It's about progress, not perfection. And we're seeing that in the Apostle Paul. We're gonna see that in Barnabas. We're gonna see that in John Mark that they had this conflict, they had this issue, and it's big enough to cause a rift, but we're gonna see further down that that's gonna get solved. They're gonna be able to come back together and find unity. Here's what we got, right? We've got the church in Antioch. They're not a maintenance mode. They're not just going through the religious motions. They're focused on the mission that God had given them to be disciples to all nations. They're not satisfied with being an institution. They're prioritizing. We become a movement by being committed to the gospel. We see Paul and, and, excuse me, Saul and Barnabas, John Mark. They're not perfect leaders, but they have surrendered to God's call on their life to lead people to the straight paths of the Lord to the ends of the earth, to continue to prioritize the gospel. And Paul said that son of wickedness 
He says, no, you're not gonna make these crooked paths and lead people away from the truth. Now I'm here, I'm gonna set the record straight. This is where hope is found, in Jesus. Not bar Jesus, not, 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 not achievement, not anything else. No, hope is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, this would what I would say that our summary for the message is, it's walking in faithfulness in the gospel that leads us to the straight paths of the Lord. Because let's just be honest, our world, isn't it full of counterfeits? Our world is full of counterfeits saying, hey, look at me, just follow me and I'll give you peace and healing. Just, just, just follow me, look at me, right? Look at, look at achievement, just go and achieve. If you can achieve enough, then you'll be satisfied. Then life will be good. If you just make enough money, if you get financially free, then, then you'll have peace and security and no problems. You know, just, just look at me. Hey, alcohol, I'll numb the pain, I'll numb the issue, and just come and follow me, and then life will be so much better. Come and have this religious experience. Come and, and, and pursue Joseph Smith and all these religious things. Those things lack the power thereof. That's why we've got to be a church and a people that are committed to the gospel, to the straight paths of the Lord. The question I want to ask you this morning are you faithful to your calling to make straight the paths to the Lord? Are you faithful to your calling? The Holy Spirit said to the church, hey, I want you to set apart Barnabas and Saul. I've got a work for them to do. Ephesians 4, 1, it says, am I walking in a manner worthy of my calling? Are you walking in a manner worthy of your calling? I know some of us would say, well, that's Paul and Barnabas. They're called to go be a missionary to Cyprus and to the rest of the world. Listen, if you've been called from darkness into light, if God has sought you out and saved you, if you have a relationship with Jesus, every one of us, we're called then to make disciples. We're called to be his witness to the ends of the earth. We're called to be his witness in our family, in our city, in our workplace. If you are a Christian, you are called to know Christ and to make Christ known. The question is, have you accepted that calling? Are you willing to do what God has called us to do is to be his witnesses? Are you willing to live a life that points people to the straight paths of the Lord. I think like John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the one out in the, the voice out crying out in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. What is your life crying out? Is your life pointing to the straight paths of the Lord? That in him are found peace and healing and acceptance and joy and salvation in Jesus? Or, let's just be honest, is our life pointing to counterfeits? See, Jesus said, wide is a road that leads to destruction, and narrow is a path that leads to life. You know what that means? 
Those are Jesus' words. It means not many people are chasing after God. Not many people are seeking the straight path to the Lord. And I, as I think about VBS and I think about all these teenage helpers that we had, we had 15 teenagers. I don't know how many teenagers we had. They were, uh, it was amazing seeing these kids. Listen, not many teenagers decide, and I'm gonna live my life for God. I don't need the world. Not many teenagers make that decision. Not many teenagers make that decision today and every day to say, I wanna, I wanna serve God. I want my life to matter. Yeah, not many teenagers and not many, to be honest, not many parents, not many grandparents, not many single people say, I want to invest my life in Jesus, in things that last for eternity. Yeah, not many people believe that there are eternal consequences for the ways that we live our lives. And not many people believe that there are eternal blessings for the way that we live our lives. Is your life leading people to the straight paths of the Lord? Or is your life leading people to a crooked path away from God? When someone looks at your life, is there a confusion about what you are about? Is there confusion about what you're about? Look at your priorities. Consider your priorities. When people look at your priorities, are they confused about what you're about or is there clarity? Yes, I'm a person. My priorities show I am committed to the straight path of the Lord. I'm committed to walking with him, to being his witness. Are you known more for your political stance than you are for your eternal stance? Are you known for more what you're against rather than what you're for? Again, we think about things like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Are those things evident in your life? Can people see them on a regular basis? 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Is love evident in your life? I'll tell you, these are hard questions. But I find these are questions I need to ask myself. Because I want people, I don't want people to know how much I love the Seahawks more than Jesus. I mean, you, we all know the Seahawks are the best team, right? Better than the black and gold and all those other teams, uh, the green and yellow and all those other, like, I love the Seahawks. I don't want people more concerned knowing more about the Seahawks than they know my faith in Jesus. Is our eternal stance, is the joy of the Lord, is the good news of Jesus, is that what's most evident in our lives? The grace that I'm forgiven, the grace that I am broken and fallen, but because I have a relationship with Jesus, I have him living inside of me. Is that what people know about you? And this is where I come back to that little girl at VBS. I come back to the lady at the funeral. Do you realize there is a spiritual battle going on? There is 
darkness and evil thoughts. There is powers and principalities that we cannot see that would have nothing more but to confuse people, to make these crooked paths away from the Lord. And how many little girls, how many little girls are going to fall for those crooked paths away from God, away from healing, away from peace and acceptance? Because we don't live our lives in a way that points to Jesus. How many people are going to be in that grieving process and try and find, uh, try and find peace from nature? Someday I'll see him again in nature. Instead of the assurance of knowing that to be absent with the body and to be present with the Lord, that we will see them again in heaven, that that is where they are now because of Jesus. I want nothing more than have these little girls that come to VBS to know that they are fully accepted in Jesus. They're not dumb. They are chosen by God. They are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. I want that lady to know that hope is not in some spiritual cliche, but hope is found in Jesus who died for you to give you the right to go to heaven when you die, that you can see Denise again in heaven. It's why for the sake of our city, for the sake of the people who have bought into the counterfeits, who are looking for peace in all the wrong places. No, let's be a people who are faithful to walk in the straight paths of the Lord, allowing the gospel to dominate and center our lives, to allow what Jesus has done to be the center of our conversations, the center of our priorities, the center of our relationships, that we would be a people worthy of our calling, to be witnesses of the greatest news in the world. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let me pray.